Hey, everybody. Jill and Liz are off visiting uh, grandparents in Saskatchewan, so I'm left to my own devices for good or ill, and that means that I can record a podcast episode. So I'm going to finish off the second half of my uh, Red River Resistance two-parter today. We left off in January 1870 when Louis Riel was elected president of the provisional government of the Red River Colony with a mandate to negotiate terms of entry for the Northwest into Confederation with Canada. But it's been a while since I recorded the first half of this story. So for those who didn't hear it or have uh, forgotten, and for myself as just a quick refresher, uh, here's a quick recap. In 1869, the British government brokered the sale of Hudson's Bay Company-controlled Rupert's Land to the new Canadian state for the price of 300,000 British pounds. They intended to use the land as a vast industrial, agricultural, and resource extraction colony to serve the interests of Eastern Canadian uh, capitalists. They wanted to populate the new colony with settlers loyal to Canada and amenable to the capitalist economic system. The problem was... There were already people living there who controlled their own land and local economy. The most populous among them were the Métis, a self-aware nation of mixed indigenous European, though mostly French descent, headquartered in the Red River Valley of what is now Manitoba. The Métis were not necessarily opposed to joining Confederation. Uh, They just wanted to ensure that they would have the same democratic right to self-government as other Canadian provinces, and that existing titles to their homes and farms would be respected. Canada, however, had no intention of negotiating with the Métis. At no point during the negotiations on the transfer of Rupert's land were the Métis ever consulted, nor were any other people in the Northwest. The transfer of Rupert's land was to be imposed on the local populace by a military force, in the form of a contingent led by Colonel Garnet Wolseley. Prior to the official transfer, Opportunists and squatters from eastern Canada began flooding the Red River Colony. These people were largely white Anglo-Saxon Protestants uh, in origin and ethnicity and worldview and religion. They didn't view the existing population of the Northwest as their equals. And it's interesting that they arrived here as squatters, where uh, that narrative has been uh, flipped over time, where uh, Métis and Indigenous people after they'd been dispossessed, were then labeled as squatters on their own land that had been uh, stolen by the Eastern Anglos. Among the early arrivals from Eastern Canada were a large contingent of Orangemen, that is, members of the Orange Order, a militant, conservative, pro-Protestant, pro-Anglo fraternal order founded in Ireland to enforce Protestant dominance in Northern Ireland. It was also the chief social institution in Upper Canada, which is later Ontario. Um, Prime Minister John A. Macdonald was an Orangeman. Uh, these were white supremacist uh, proto-fascists, uh, the roots of right-wing extremism in Canada, including uh, the current convoy movement can be traced right back to these guys. Um, they're the founders of Canada. This is the founding philosophy of Canada. There's no other way to say it. Look it up for yourself. It's right there in black and white. Um, This is what Canada is. These people have created the Canadian national identity as we have it today, and their descendants are the foremost defenders of it. Uh, You can see that on the far right very clearly. Why are they called Orangemen? Why Orange? I mean, uh, that's something I didn't mention earlier. They're named after um, British monarch William of Orange, who was an an aristocrat imported from Netherlands, basically, uh, in kind of like a forced merger between the Netherlands and the Brits, the English. Um, The Netherlands and the British being the two main uh, exponents of the capitalist economic system in the 1600s at the time. The two big ones, the two ones, the two that had really like uh, figured it out, where it had taken hold, where it had taken hold uh, the most. Uh, was Britain and the Netherlands. And after the uh, English Civil War, uh, part of the conditions of reestablishing the monarchy was that it, it, the monarchy would be uh, largely largely disempowered and the true, true power would lie on this new ascendant uh, capitalist uh, class. 
So to like smooth things over, this was the compromise that uh, that a new monarch, uh, William of Orange, who's not British or English, uh, would come over and uh, sort of like rule in name. It's you get a, a much weakened uh, monarchy after this. Um, it laid the basis for the current uh, British constitutional uh, monarchy that still exists uh, today, to some extent. Um, but why William of Orange? Why do they name their their movement after him? I guess like he rep- represents the three big things that uh, that they like: uh, Protestantism, uh, Unionism, and capitalism, uh, all wrapped up in one. He's uh, remembered for victories in Ireland, putting down the forces of the deposed uh, King James the uh, Second during or after the Glorious Revolution in the 1690s i think i'm not sure you can look it up it's all on wikipedia you can trust what it says about that but basically uh yeah william of orange really like uh, embodied the values of british unionism uh which is essentially uh english supremacy over the british isles and over the peoples of wales scotland and ireland and by extension the uh, entire world basically uh protestantism that is protestant supremacy over catholicism and all other religions and worldviews and capitalism that's capitalism's uh supremacy as the new ascendant uh world uh, economic order i suppose that's the best i can do uh hopefully that's close enough so these orangemen uh they led a program of harassment and violence against the metis and other indigenous people in the red river colony prior to the official transfer these were settler shock troops. Uh, Canada sent out military officers to begin to resurvey the land prior to the official transfer, and these soldier surveyors were also orangemen. Uh, these new surveys ignored the existing Métis farms and river lots and imposed the English-style grid system, drawing lines right through existing property and ignoring existing arrangements about rights of use to previously unsurveyed land. For example, uh, Métis farmers often had other lands that they used for timber that were often marked off by the building of a base of a log cabin uh, as a visual indication that the land was in use, that it was uh, occupied or de facto owned. The Canadian surveyors ignored these uh, pragmatic arrangements, as did the Anglo squatters who arrived before the surveyors, claiming that these uh, clearly in-use lands were unoccupied, uh, largely due to the Métis being absent for blocks of time due to the seasonal nature of the buffalo hunt. But these timber and farmlands were not in fact abandoned, Uh, just the people who uh, occupied and used them were off working at their seasonal jobs hunting bison. In the face of these events, the Métis began to organize the population of the Red River Colony to resist what they rightfully considered to be a foreign invasion. At the invitation of the local chief factor of the Hudson's Bay Company, the Métis occupied the administrative headquarters of the Red River Colony and all of the Northwest in general at Upper Fort Garry. There, in January 1870, they formed a provisional government representative of all Red River Colony inhabitants, with Louis Riel as president, to negotiate terms of entry into Confederation. So we're picking our story up from there. Uh, But to backtrack just a smidge, when the Métis leaders were invited to uh, occupy Upper Fort Garry, the administrative hub of the uh, Red River Colony, that really f- freaked out the extremist Anglos. And uh, J.C. Schultz, uh, you'll remember him from the previous episode, uh, was chief among them. He was the fake doctor who started uh, what he called the Canada Party. It was uh, really just a, a gang of thugs, basically. In December 1869, uh, 67 uh, Canada Party members met in J.C. Schultz's uh, Lower Fort Garry warehouse. There's a Lower Fort Garry. It's different than Upper Fort Garry. Two completely separate locations, uh, very similar names. Uh, it's a little confusing, but, but it is what it is. Basically, the Canadian Party met to plot the overthrow of the Métis leadership uh, who occupied Upper Fort Garry, who were governing on behalf of the existing multiracial inhabitants. And these guys were planning a coup on behalf of the newly arrived uh, white Anglo minority. Uh, Somehow word of this got back to the Métis leadership at uh, Upper Fort Garry, and Riel had Schultz 
and as many of his gang as they could find uh, rounded up and imprisoned. You'll remember Thomas Scott from the earlier episode. He becomes a central figure uh, in the events that follow. Uh, Thomas Scott had not been at the warehouse, but when he learned about the arrests, he demanded that the prisoners be freed. When Riel refused, Scott yelled racist insults at him, and so he got himself arrested. Uh, He continued his tirades while imprisoned, threatening at one point to shoot Riel. Remember, Schultz is, is the guy who... Uh, he's a white supremacist thug, uh, basically. He's not one of the big brains of this operation. Uh, he's, um, he's an orangeman. Uh, he's a working person. He's a joiner inner. He doesn't have a lot to, to gain here other than perhaps, um, some stolen land. If he can survive long enough anyway. So the Métis, uh, went around, uh, rounding up as many of uh, Schultz's gang as possible, and most of them had been imprisoned uh, by January. Uh, they were released once the provisional government was assured of support from the whole settlement. Uh, however, uh, Schultz and his followers continued to harass the Red River people. By attacking the French Métis, they hoped to gain support from the English population of the settlement. The whole uh, divide-and-conquer sort of strategy, you see that uh, now in a lot of the moral panics that you get from the right. Um, this is essentially like the the racist playbook, you know, the uh, whites versus indigenous here in Canada, white versus black in the States, etc. Uh, the Canadian Encyclopedia notes that on January 9th, uh, Thomas Scott and 12 other men managed to uh, escape from Upper Fort Gary. Uh, he and a guy named Charles Mayer then found snowshoes and somehow walked 103 kilometers through a blizzard uh, to Portage la Prairie. And Charles Mayer is another example of these uh, grifters, charlatans, uh, fancy lad sort of fail sons uh, coming out here from Ontario. Uh, There's a reason why so many of them uh, came here. They're nominally middle class, but uh, downwardly mobile or their reputations were kind of pooched out there. Uh, So they're coming out here to what they consider to be the the frontier to make a name for themselves, make a fortune on uh, dispossessing the people already living here, that sort of thing. Charles Mayer is one of these people. He was a contemporary of J.C. Schultz. Uh, he considered himself to be an artistic and cultured person. Uh, well, at the same time, he was an ultra-nationalist, incredibly racist. He was a poet uh, in the sense that he wrote poems that, that were somewhat popular at the time. He had a bit of a following. He was a bit of a famous guy after the events of the resistance. He, he made a name for himself there. And like a lot of these types of people, he was he was really popular at the time, very quickly fell into complete obscurity, and nobody knows who he is now. He was born in Ontario, Mayor attended Queen's University with John Schultz, and like him, also did not graduate. To be clear, there's nothing wrong with not graduating from university. I haven't graduated from university. There is something wrong with uh, going around lying about it for personal gain, though. Uh, In the spring of 1868 in Ottawa, he was one of the three original founders of the openly nationalist Canada First movement, uh, of which Schultz was a prominent member. Uh, They would openly agitate against Riel, the Métis, and the provisional government back in Ontario after these initial events of the resistance. At about the same time, he published a book of poetry called Dreamland and Other Poems, an echo of John Keats. That's kind of interesting. A Keats guy. He received a patronage appointment from William McDougall, John A.'s appointed governor to uh, the Northwest, as secretary for the Canadian mission to London to negotiate the transfer of Rupert's land. Uh, But he was unable to go. So he was supposed to be involved in the uh, Canadian takeover takeover of the Northwest uh, right from the get-go. Um, he settled instead for an appointment as assistant on the Canadian Roadworks near Red River and was also named Red River correspondent of several Ontario newspapers, including The Globe, uh, which is now The Globe and Mail. Uh, his comments about Red River, so-called mixed-blood ladies, led to his being horsewhipped by one Annie Bannatine in February 1869, a noted uh, Winnipeg family. Uh, good for her, I'd say. Uh, Mayor married and Eliza McKinney, a niece of John Schultz. You'll remember Henry McKinney from the previous episode, uh, Schultz's uh, brother-in-law. Uh, the reason he even uh, got here was to was to visit his family. So their uh, Mayor and Schultz are related uh, through marriage. Anyway, 
And Mayer was one of the most active of the pro-Canadian party that Schultz founded in Red River in 1869. Uh, he was part of a group that surrendered to uh, Louis Riel at, at Schultz's house in December 1869 uh, for his part in uh, planning the coup against the Métis. Uh, but he escaped a month later with Scott, as we said. He went first to Portage la Prairie, uh, then south to St. Paul, traveling east with Donald A. Smith. I forget if we mentioned him in the first episode, uh, but that's he's another uh, famous name involved in these proceedings. I'm not. I forget whether we'll get to him or not. We'll. Uh, we may mention Smith later, or we may not. He. You can look him up. You can look him up if you want. Anyway, uh, Mayor appeared at a number of rallies in Ontario in 1870 to stir up hostility to Riel and the provisional government, and he testified before a Senate subcommittee on the matter in April 1870. Uh, he received $1,910 for lost property, for property he supposedly lost uh, during the Red River Resistance, and uh, $66 for his troubles due to uh, his being imprisoned uh, at this time. This is later on after uh, all the dust had settled. Um, he gets uh, compensated for his trouble for being a uh, white supremacist uh, coup leader. Anyway, uh, he ended up being a postmaster and storekeeper in Porge la Prairie, uh, postmaster from 1872 to 1877. They later owned a store in Porge la Prairie. Uh, and he was an officer of the Governor General's bodyguards in 1885, whatever that means. Under pressure from his friends, he sought Canadian topics to write about uh, later in life. And in 1886, he published Tecumseh, a verse drama well regarded at the time. And subsequently, he was elected a member of the Royal Society. Mayer then went on to help found the city of Kelowna, British Columbia, strangely enough. And he wrote Through the Mackenzie Basin, published in 1908, uh, based on his work as secretary of the commission that negotiated uh, with the indigenous people there in 1899. Interesting, he was negotiating with uh, those indigenous people, uh, but uh, he wouldn't negotiate with the indigenous people in the Red River in the 1860s and 70s. Uh, and you can't help speculate, but what those negotiations with the indigenous people in 1899 were actually like, uh, versus uh, what Charles Mayer said they were like. Regardless, he moved to Victoria in 1921, as many older uh, Anglo-Canadians are known to do. Once a highly regarded Canadian poet, his reputation has slipped into eclipse, at least partly due to the rawness of his Canadian nationalism. Uh, so, like, really interesting guy. I thought uh, some of the details of his life were worth sharing, just as in, like, these complete uh, frauds and grifters. Uh, there's no other way to describe them. Uh, continually, like, fail upwards uh, despite the uh, suffering uh, that they cause at uh, every turn that they take. Um, and these are the people who uh, who benefit from the establishment of Canada. They're the prototype for the modern white middle-class Canadian, I'd say. Uh, failing up and faking it till they make it. Meanwhile, anyone who crosses their paths gets left in their wake. It's interesting contrasting Charles Mayer living to a ripe old age, retiring in Victoria as a Canadian hero, and uh, Louis Riel uh, being hunted his whole life, suffering from PTSD, and uh, being murdered by the Canadian state at a relatively young age. It's quite the discrepancy. But there is some comfort in knowing that uh, nobody knows who Charles Mayer is now. Uh, he's a completely obscure fringe figure. While Louis Riel's uh, story and reputation uh, only grows and becomes more resonant over time. But uh, anyway, moving on from Charles Mayer, uh, a month after, the, after his prison break with Thomas Scott in February 1870. Uh, still suffering from frostbite, uh, Scott joined the Canadian militia major Charles Arkell Bolton, I know when we're talking about like Canadian militia majors and colonels and stuff, these ranks are uh, arbitrary. They're giving themselves these own ranks. These are just guys. These are uh, these are just like middle class business guys. Uh, they're self appointed essentially. This is an amateur militia, not a trained uh, army. Some of them are trained soldiers, but uh, most most of them are not. These are um, these are somewhat well to do businessmen who are raising their own uh, militias. They're uh, hiring 
less well-to-do people to um, take up arms on their behalf. They didn't need to have any previous military experience to become an officer. You just had to be uh, a middle class, find a bunch of guys who are usually your own employees at your business that you own or or your farm that you own. Secure funding for your expedition. Uh, usually funding came from your friends and family. Maybe the government chipped in a little bit. I may have ranted about this already in the previous episode. I honestly forget. Apologies if I already did. Um, but anyway, uh, the uh, this contingent that Scott joins up with, uh, with Bolton, uh, him and about 60 others, uh, they marched through cold and snow, intent on recapturing uh, Upper Fort Gary, freeing the rest of Schultz's gang that were imprisoned there and overthrowing Riel. They were joined along the way by another hundred men armed with muskets and clubs. So this is like a real, uh, this is a real mob. So when they arrived at Upper Fort Gary, they learned that in their absence, Riel had already released all the remaining prisoners. So they're a little bit, uh, a little bit late. I guess the uh, news never reached them or they didn't care. When many in the group heard this news, uh, they left, they dispersed. But Bolton, Scott, and 45 others remained at Upper Fort Gary, and they continued to agitate for Riel's resignation. Riel subsequently uh, had them arrested. So uh, Thomas Scott gets himself thrown back in jail uh, after having escaped once. He was free and clear. He went back. So uh, a military council of the provisional government determined that Bolton was guilty of treason against the government of the Red River Colony and he should be executed. After appeals from church leaders and Donald Smith, who he mentioned earlier, who was the commissioner from uh, Prime Minister John A. Macdonald's government, uh, Riel was persuaded to drop the sentence. This incident and Riel's mercy for Bolton improved support for the provisional government in Red River across Canada. So this was seen as very, very positive that they, they let Bolton go. But that goodwill wouldn't last for very long. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Thomas Scott remained in jail, uh, where he made himself a nuisance, as you can imagine. He constantly complained about conditions, uh, constantly shouting violent threats and racist insults at his Métis guards. Uh, they chained his feet and hands, but he persisted. Nonetheless, he persisted. Uh, on February 28th, uh, after assaulting one of his guards, two other guards dragged Scott outside and beat him until a member of Riel's government saw the incident and stopped them. Uh, Riel then visited Scott and speaking with him through a hole in the door, tried to calm the man, but Scott uh, continued uh, with his uh, racist insults and tirades. And here's where it's interesting to contrast the Canadian encyclopedia accounts with the Prison of Grass accounts of Scott's uh, trial and sentencing. So the Canadian encyclopedia contends that Scott was not allowed a lawyer and because he didn't speak French, he didn't understand the evidence against him. Uh, it says that uh, Scott's that witnesses in Scott's trial were not cross-examined, and only at the end of the trial did uh, Louis Riel address Scott in English and summarize what had happened. Uh, one member of the council voted for acquittal and another for banishment, but four out of the six declared Scott guilty and said he should be executed by firing squad. The account from Prison of Grass, based on uh, Métis history, differs considerably uh, from the Canadian Encyclopedia's account. It says, On March 3rd, 1870, Thomas Scott was brought before the Council of War at Fort Garry. His history in Red River had been one of violence and crime. He had been found guilty of robbery and violent assault and had been sentenced to prison. As an Orangeman and passionate racist, he had been involved in intrigues to foster hatred among the population of Red River, and he had instigated a plot for the murder of Riel. Scott had been imprisoned twice in Fort Garry under the authority of the provisional government, and had escaped once by overpowering and beating the guards, at the same time attempting to incite other inmates to do the same. This time he was charged with having taken up arms against the government and with assaulting a guard. He was tried by a jury of seven men and was allowed to call witnesses and to defend himself. The jury, composed of local residents, found Scott guilty of his crimes and sentenced him to execution. Contrary to the propaganda of the federal government at the time, Louis Riel had nothing to do with his conviction. Riel gave evidence as a witness and, in fact, pleaded that leniency be shown to the accused. Although Scott's execution was a legal action of the provisional government, Ottawa used it as a pretext 
to generate a racist hatred against the Métis and the provisional government. Some historians still claim that Scott was harmless, but those alive at the time have unanimously condemned him. Howard Adams then quotes a contemporary source from uh, someone who was there and was familiar with the events, uh, who says, I now repeat that Scott deserved his fate, and I defy any living man who has positively known what sort of a desperate character Scott was to conscientiously put forward the argument that his death was not a measure of public safety. Uh, That quote is from a book called The Gibbet of Regina, published in 1886. It would be directly after the Battle of Batoche in Saskatchewan in uh, the mid-1800s. The Battle of Batoche um, which would have been, which was the concluding event of the ongoing uh, Northwest resistance. Authorship is attributed uh, to an anonymous person referred to as one who knows. So uh, it's really interesting contrasting what is still like the mainstream, mainline uh, official narrative about the trial and execution of Thomas Scott versus uh, contemporary accounts and uh, Métis history. Uh, That is definitely something to think about, especially if you're encountering this discrepancy for the first time. History is not objective. It's written by people. People have certain viewpoints, they have certain interests, and they have certain biases. Whose perspective are we taking? And whose story are we repeating? It's just the whole uh, Rashomon thing. The execution of Thomas Scott was uh, a turning point, I suppose, in the course of the Red River resistance, uh, the events would probably have played out uh, like they did anyway. However, Scott was portrayed as a martyr uh, to Anglos back in Ontario. It really riled up the Orangemen. It really riled up the anti-Métis, anti-Indigenous sentiments among the white Anglos in Ontario. Uh, People like Charles Merritt traveled back to Ontario and held anti-Red River, anti-Métis, anti-Riel rallies. Riel was painted as um, sort of like judge-jury executioner sort of uh, figure, where, according to Métis accounts, he had very little to do with Scott's trial and execution, even uh, advocated for leniency on his behalf. Um, But in the view of uh, the white Anglo-Canadians, Scott was a martyr, and uh, Riel was a murderer. That's how it was painted uh, back in Ontario to continue to justify um, the military takeover of of Red River and the Northwest uh, by this point. Um, This incident was a major catalyst in the formation of the Canada First movement, as was the Red River resistance in general. Uh, J.C. Schultz, as we said, was a leading member of this movement, and Riel was used. Uh, Riel was was a scapegoat figure uh, for these people. Riel, who had like contemporary accounts um, portray as like pleading with Scott to chill out uh, prior to him even going to trial. He had no role on the jury that sentenced Scott to death. Um, Riel was painted as the sole actor in all these affairs he had very little to do with them and was not involved in deciding the outcome. Uh, Back in Ontario, a bounty was placed on Riel's head by the orange racist extremists. Uh, Canadian authorities were still willing to negotiate with Riel and the provisional government, uh, but they refused to grant him unconditional amnesty, um, nor did they grant amnesty to any of the leaders of the resistance. So the Canadian authorities were aware of, of this bounty. A lot of the Canadian authorities uh, would have been Orangemen themselves and would have been in support of the bounty on Riel's head. They would have seen Riel as, as a murderer of, of Scott. So the Canadian government forced Riel and the other delegates then to travel to Ottawa to negotiate with MacDonald and the Canadian government with their uh, threats of their own murder hanging over their heads. In effect, so like, like, remember, like the provisional government was formed to negotiate directly with Ottawa. So Riel and so Riel and other members of their delegation like had to physically travel to Ottawa to negotiate uh, their terms, and they had to do this with a bounty on their heads, which the Canadian government refused to lift or take any measures against. They didn't take any measures, took no measures for their protection. They would have done this deliberately as a deliberate like intimidation tactic. So yeah, the Canadian government was forced to recognize the provisional government to 
an extent in that uh, they did accept a delegation from the provisional government to travel to Ottawa in the spring of 1870 um, to negotiate on behalf of the people of Red River. So in in that sense, the provisional government was uh, nominally successful in getting the Canadian uh, government to recognize their authority to negotiate their entrance into confederation. Uh, but it was a limited victory, uh, obviously. Uh, Canada had no intention of ever honoring the rights of the people in Red River. So um, I think that's a that's an important point to make that uh, due to the very like existence of the provisional government and their exercising of, of law within their territory, which is what the Thomas Scott case was, was uh, the provisional government exercising their rights to maintain law uh, in their jurisdiction. The Canadian government wasn't able to do anything about it to, to stop them uh, at the time, and even accepted the provisional government's right to negotiate. But this wasn't due to any uh, good faith on the Canadian authorities' part. It was only due to the demonstrated power of the provisional government to exercise, to enforce the law uh, under their territory. Uh, that's an important point to make, and that's why the Thomas Scott case was uh, was so important. Um, so yeah, Riel and, uh, and a delegation did go to Ottawa to uh, negotiate with, with the government in person, and on May 12th, a new province called Manitoba was created uh, by the Manitoba Act in the Canadian Parliament. Its territory was severely limited. The uh, provisional government was originally formed to um, administer the former HBC territory of Sinaboya. Look it up on the map. It's a pretty big territory. It even encompasses parts of uh, the United States in uh, the Red River Valley in Minnesota and North Dakota. Uh, but it did encompass all of the Northwest, not all of Rupert's land. And uh, the new province of Manitoba uh, only entered Confederation as a small part of that district of Assiniboia. It was called the Postage Stamp Province. It was a little uh, square, basically, uh, centered on uh, the area which is directly around Winnipeg. Um, and this was done like in order to ensure that the entire Northwest didn't benefit from any of the provisions uh, negotiated by the Red River delegation. Um, the Canadian government wanted wanted to acquire the entire uh, Rupert's land area, the entire Northwest area in one big chunk and, Im and impose their terms on the entire region. Uh, the Red River delegation was able to secure some concessions because they organized and exercised power within their jurisdiction, which the Canadian government was forced to acknowledge. Uh, but they made sure that uh, the additional terms negotiated by the Red River delegation only applied to a very small portion of the Northwest, and specifically a very small portion of the Red River uh, territory itself. Um, even within the new province of Manitoba, public lands were to be controlled by the federal government rather than provincially. This was a loss for the Red River delegation. Um, as it meant that they wouldn't be able to uh, control future settlement of those lands which were uh, controlled by Ottawa. Uh, and uh, crucially, the one thing that the Métis were most, um, were most concerned with, why this whole uh, resistance kicked off to begin with, uh, Métis land titles were guaranteed by the Canadian government. And uh, 607,000 hectares were reserved for the children of Métis families. This was in the original arrangement for the creation of Manitoba. However, um, subsequently, these arrangements were mismanaged by later federal governments because the government had no intention of honoring the arrangements. Uh, it still has no intention of honoring uh, any of these arrangements or any arrangement it makes with any indigenous peoples. Uh, the question of uh, the Métis land grant is still unresolved. The Canadian government uh, began to swindle the Métis out of that land grant uh, right from the get-go. Um, look up uh, Métis scrip in 1870. Scrip is a form of uh, pseudo-currency that's extremely susceptible to fraud by design. It's meant to take advantage of the people that you issue it to uh, so that the issuer uh, reaps the benefits, not the people that, you, that receive it. Uh, the Manitoba government just announced funding for a type of uh, food currency. Sensibly, that's 
uh, supposed to help low-income people who are largely indigenous and Métis um, buy more local food. What helps low-income people uh, eat more local food is giving land to low-income people so that they can grow their own food and to give them uh, time to grow it. But really what it does is subsidize uh, landowners, most of whom are second, third, fourth uh, generation uh, inheritors of land that uh, was stolen from Indigenous and Métis people. So I don't know, it doesn't take a genius to figure this stuff out. That's a type of uh, food script. Uh, it's kind of the same idea. Um, it's just the same old swindle, just uh, just uh, shiny new and rebranded. So the Métis delegation in their negotiations with Ottawa, um, the Métis, if there's one uh, mistake that they that they did make, it was that they, even after um, the events with the attempted coup and the Thomas Scott situation, that they st- still believed the Canadian government would be negotiating with them in good faith, uh, which is, I think, uh, noble or honorable on the part of uh, the Red River delegation, if perhaps a little naive. Um, that said, they must have known that they were there to get swindled and that the Canadian government was going to push ahead the original plan uh, with or without them. Um, they they must have known that the Wolseley expedition was on the way. Uh, and once they arrived, Canada would be dictating terms uh, at the barrel of a gun, uh, regardless of any deal that they could uh, cut in Ottawa. But I wasn't there. I'd I don't know what they're thinking. They're trying to get the best deal that they possibly could uh, for the people that they represented, uh, their families and their communities back home. So, as you can imagine, the Métis Nation did not flourish in Manitoba after 1870. Um, Ottawa continued to grant no amnesty for Louis Riel and other members of the provisional government. This is even after they had negotiated the creation of Manitoba. So uh, Riel still remained like public enemy number one back in Ontario. So uh, we mentioned the Wolseley expedition uh, earlier as a means of exercising Canadian authority in the settlement and dissuading uh, American expansionists. Remember, there the Canada was uh, mostly afraid of uh, the U.S. coming up and claiming uh, the Northwest before they could get out there, and they were afraid of a very real possibility that the Métis would seek help from the U.S. in resisting uh, Canada's takeover. It's one of the reasons they had to push through the uh, the deal to acquire it. A joint British-Canadian military expedition under Colonel Garnet Wolseley, consisting of at least 1,200 men, was dispatched to the Red River. Although the Canadian government described it as an errand of peace, in quotes, uh, this is a, a peacekeeping mission. They literally framed it as such. Keep that in mind uh, when Canadian troops are sent next uh, overseas on another peacekeeping mission. Uh, Riel learned that Canadian militia elements in the expedition uh, meant to lynch him. Uh, so he fled to the U.S. before Wolseley arrived. So fearing that their lives would be in jeopardy once Canada assumed official control of the territory, Riel and other Red River leaders fled into exile just before the arrival of the Wolseley expedition in August 1870. As we said, there were Métis settlements south of the Canada-U.S. border at the 49th parallel. Much of the Red River Valley is south of the 49th parallel. Uh, that's where the Métis had their settlements. And the Hudson's Bay district of Assiniboia also extended south of the border. So uh, Riel and the provisional government uh, members, fearing for their lives, could flee south of the border. There were Métis communities and they had family down there. Uh, so, Louis, so Riel resided in St. Joseph, North Dakota, where uh, stress and financial troubles precipitated a serious illness, perhaps a harbinger of his future uh, mental afflictions, which he would suffer from for the remainder of his life. So uh, stress due to, obviously, the events of the Red River resistance and uh, having a a bounty on his head from uh, white supremacist extremists and financial troubles caused by the expropriation of Métis land by Canadians uh, precipitated serious illness. It was described in pretty like nebulous terms at the time, but now we'd understand it as the result of a significant uh, trauma and PTSD, uh, which would any which anyone would suffer from uh, given 
those circumstances. Uh, you'd in fact uh, find that uh, that PTSD and uh, other mental afflictions are a direct result of being dispossessed and colonized, uh, as we know from following the story in uh, in Clearing the Plains. So, in the first Manitoba provincial government elections, uh, many Riel supporters were sent to the new legislature which signaled to Riel that it was possibly safe for him to return home, which he did in May 1871. The Canadian government, however, still refused to grant him amnesty officially, so he did return to the U.S. after playing a role in opposing a failed Fenian uprising organized by his former provisional government colleague William O'Donoghue, which is a little interesting that Riel would then would side with Canada against the Fenians. You'd think maybe his interests would side more with the Fenian side, also interesting that there are Fenian elements within the provisional government and that there was a split within uh, the former provisional government members and uh, leadership of the Red River Colony and Métis uh, along these lines. So like more about that, in October 1871, William Bernard O'Donoghue, a former member of the Red River provisional government who fled across the international border with Riel, organized a raid into Manitoba on behalf of the Fenians. While in exile, he and Riel fell out over O'Donoghue's plan to approach the U.S. to intercede in the Red River dispute on their behalf. O'Donoghue subsequently associated with the Fenian Brotherhood and on October 5th led 35 men on a cross-border raid into Manitoba. They hoped to rally the Métis and retake Manitoba for the people of Red River, a kind of a Castro and Cuba-style revolution. Uh, this plan failed spectacularly. In fact, uh, Riel even raised several regiments of Métis fighters who oppose him. O'Donoghue was arrested and sent to authorities in Minnesota. O'Donoghue later became a schoolteacher and died of tuberculosis in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1878. So that's a little interesting uh, sidebar there to this whole situation. The ties between the earlier Fenian uh, movement and the Red River Resistance movement sort of uh, flowed together. Meanwhile, the Canada First Movement continued to stoke anti-Riel, anti-Métis sentiment, sentiment in Ontario to the extent that they forced uh, the federal government to continue to withhold amnesty for Riel. Uh, they even offered a bribe to Riel to remain in the U.S. Uh, because he was so popular, popular and exerted so much influence in the Red River and across the Northwest. It's not confirmed whether he took the bribe or not. Uh, we just know that he was offered it. So even though he was exiled effectively, Riel uh, remained extremely popular, and he returned in June 1872, where he uh, stood for election federally and won the riding of Provence in October 1873, running as an independent, uh, despite an official warrant being issued for his arrest in September. This is likely after he had already entered the race, uh, so the authorities thought uh, that was the time to try to officially get rid of him. So he needed to flee prior to election day. Uh, interesting that the uh, current federal riding of Provence is now dominated by the predominantly uh, Mennonite city of Steinbach in southeast Manitoba. So you have um, rich Mennonite landowners now representing the federal riding uh, whose first uh, elected representative was uh, Louis Riel. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, so from there, Riel traveled to Montreal in secret, where he vacillated on whether to attempt to take his seat in Parliament in Ottawa. The Premier of Ontario, having personally offered a $5,000 bounty for his arrest, like this wasn't just like a right-wing extremist uh, on the hunt for uh, Riel. Uh, it was it was the Premier of Ontario and uh, the Government of Canada as well. Um, Despite this, Riel was re-elected in 1874. This time, he traveled to Ottawa in disguise to sign the parliamentary registry. Uh, our friend J.C. Schultz, who had also been elected to parliament in the Manitoba riding of Liskar, now interestingly a part of a former conservative interim leader uh, Candace Bergen's riding, Schultz was a supporter of a motion to have Riel's name stricken from the parliamentary rolls. Uh, triggering a by-election in Provence, which Riel easily won again, uh, after which, and again, uh, the parliament expelled him. Uh, you can see a Canadian representative uh, democracy in action right there. If they don't like you, they'll just uh, kick you out. It doesn't matter if you've been democratically elected. 
they just won't let you in the building. Meanwhile, Andros Lapine, uh, you remember he was the guy who turned back uh, Canadian uh, Governor McDougal at the border. Uh, he'd been arrested and tried for his role in the execution of Thomas Scott, and uh, he was in himself sentenced to death. Um, however, uh, much of Quebec was sympathetic to the Métis cause and supported amnesty for Riel and Lapine. So due to public pressure in Quebec, the Governor General, Lord Dufferin, acted on his own initiative to commute Lapine's sentence, and this was uh, in January 1875. So you see, like, after the formation of uh, of Manitoba, it really wasn't safe for the Métis leaders to be in their own land. The government was still prosecuting a, a vendetta against them. Uh, despite um, the Métis leaders being extremely popular uh, within Red River. Um, so this allowed the new liberal government uh, under Prime Minister Mackenzie to go ahead and give amnesty to Riel. Uh, but this was under the condition that he remain in exile in the U.S. for five additional years. Uh, but even though he now had amnesty from the federal government, this doesn't mean that doesn't mean that the racist psychopaths are going to stop hunting you. Uh, they still had their own bounties out on his head. Due to this, uh, Riel's mental health continued to deteriorate. Uh, he continued living with the Catholic order in the U.S., uh, but was smuggled to Montreal and put under the care of his uncle, who later had him committed to an asylum uh, in Montreal in 1876 under an assumed name. Uh, he was then later transferred to Quebec City due to his doctor's fear of uh, his being discovered and reported. So he was living as a as a fugitive, basically, uh, with his mental health destroyed and and uh, and being largely like unable to care for himself. Throughout the 1870s, the bison herds continued to dwindle and were gradually exterminated, due in large part to American policy designed to starve out indigenous populations south of the border, but also tacitly supported by the Canadian state. The economic base of the Métis people uh, had disappeared. Canada reneged on or refused to follow up on any of the terms negotiated by the Red River Provisional Government. Métis claims to their lands were ignored. Their lands were resurveyed and granted to increasing numbers of European settlers, including my own uh, Mennonite ancestors. They soon became outnumbered uh, by the new settlers and relegated to the margins in their own land. They suffered ever-increasing levels of abuse and harassment by the new arrivals, who viewed them explicitly as lesser humans, savages and outlaws who defied the government and the natural order of things and so were deserving of their fate under these conditions many metis understandably moved westward following the dwindling bison and because for many their homes simply no longer existed their farms were given to orangemen and other racist patriots of the british empire or european settlers often of insular ultra conservative radical fringe religious sects like the mennonites like we mentioned earlier who spoke neither English nor French and had no knowledge of the history of the place they now occupied, or no ties to the land whatsoever. Their only claim to the land was issued by the federal government of a country 2,000 kilometers away that only came into existence a few years before. Louis Riel settled in the area of Fort Benton, Montana, where he worked as a trader and an interpreter and as an activist against the whiskey trade, the disastrous effects of which he could now see in his local community of dispossessed Métis. He would returned to Canada in the 1880s during the events of the Northwest Resistance and the Battle of Batoche, a later more explicitly violent and tragic attempt by the Métis and other Indigenous peoples to assert their rights to self-government and basic human dignity, after which the British imperialists and the Canadian expansionists would finally exact their revenge on Riel for his role as lead spokesman for the Red River people 15 years prior. He was arrested and hanged for treason, at the Northwest Mounted Police Barracks in Regina on November 16th, 1885. Uh, and this period is covered in Chapter 9 of Clearing the Plains, uh, which we'll hopefully get to in uh, subsequent episodes. I think in the last episode, I mentioned something about talking more about the Catholic Church's role in the events of the Red River Resistance. Honestly, their role seems to be a little uh, peripheral to the main narrative. If you want to dig around a little bit, I'm sure you could find more information on that. Probably the most central Catholic official involved in the resistance events was Bishop Taché, a nominal ad advisor to Riel and the Métis leadership. Riel himself was trained as a as a Catholic priest, and, and the Métis were by and large uh, Catholic, uh, as we've said before. 
Um, but uh, church officials, Catholics, Anglicans, and other mainline uh, Protestant groups will come into play more so after the events of the Northwest Resistance and the residential schools start to become established. In Prison of Grass, Howard Adams is a bit disparaging about uh, Bishop Taché. I think he sees him as um, a stooge for Ottawa, working directly with the McDonald government to try to pacify the resistance in Red River. He would later advocate for amnesty for Riel. But at the end of the day, he was a Catholic bishop, so his main task was to promote Catholicism in the West through uh, immigration of Francophones from uh, Quebec. His loyalties uh, didn't lie with the indigenous people. Uh, Howard Adams is generally uh, disparaging of the role of the Catholic Church in Métis society in general. And uh, we should also mention that we're missing the uh, perspective of the women in this narrative of the, of the resistance. We obviously know there were women there. Uh, Red River people had families. And the women were uh, carrying the brunt of the um, like the social labor, uh, child raising, elder care, that kind of thing, um, taking care of things at home while the men are off uh, having meetings or uh, bison hunting, uh, things like that. But they'd be doing most of the day-to-day -day, uh, legwork to keep the actual community running uh, during the events of the resistance. And then, of course, when we're talking about dispossession, and that's an inherently uh, violent process, and there was uh, violence involved, and uh, women would have bore the brunt of that uh, violence uh, from the newly arriving settlers. So this narrative of the resistance is uh, incomplete until we get uh, that piece added in. So um, if I'm going to revisit this topic and uh, revise it, I'm going to be looking for more of those sources. So I just wanted to mention that. So, to start wrapping up, uh, the Red River Resistance had won its major objectives on paper, but not in reality. The colony officially became a distinct province with land and cultural rights guaranteed, but the Métis soon found themselves so disadvantaged in Manitoba that they were forced to move west to escape violence and harassment by the newly arrived settlers, and later their officers in the Northwest Mounted Police. Louis Riel was a more controversial figure when I was younger, in the 80s, and 90s, but he's uh, largely been rehabilitated and his image rebranded and embraced by the Canadian state as the father and founder of the provinces of both Manitoba and Saskatchewan. So like a little whitewashing there of uh, Louis Riel's uh, legacy, uh, much like you see in the US with uh, Martin Luther King, sort of like de-radicalized figure where the more controversial aspects uh, of his story are downplayed or like not mentioned uh, at all. They're sort of like embraced as part of the ongoing Canadian multicultural identity sort of project uh, later on once uh, once the people who knew what happened are long dead and gone. So certainly uh, Rail's role in the events in Red River and later the Northwest uh, resistances can't be ignored. His personal story is fascinating just because he was he was branded in Ontario as the face of the Métis resistance right from the beginning, but to single out Brielle as the primary actor in these events is to paper over the actions of everyone else around him and to downplay the real and necessary role of all Red River people, of all racial configurations, men, women, children, elders. They were all involved in the resistance in some way, and they all suffered from the hands of the newly arriving settlers and the retribution of the Canadian state in the aftermath of the events. So if Riel is the face of the resistance, uh, the ordinary Red River people uh, were the body. Uh, Riel was simply an elected official, um, one with some education, some privilege, and a conscience. But he wouldn't have been put in a position of leadership in the first place if his community hadn't selected him to be there. He acted in his role only by the express democratic consent of the people he represented. If you want to see how grassroots power emerges, is organized and how it is carried out democratically here in the Red River, in Manitoba, on the plains in Canada, the Red River resistance is a good example to use. It's probably the largest set piece in the history of clearing the plains. It's the point at which the people of the plains have the best shot at reversing the historical trend of decline, starting with the virgin soil smallpox epidemics of the previous century and securing 
real autonomy and self-government for themselves and a future for their children, grandchildren, and all subsequent generations. Now, um, you may be saying, yeah, uh, but they still lost. So what's the point of that? Um, The point isn't to win any one conflict or confrontation. Conflict and confrontation is inevitable in certain circumstances. It certainly was in these circumstances. Um, So you can't avoid it, even if the outcome seems very certain, even at the start. Uh, Some resistances do win, uh, despite overwhelming odds. That does happen. The vast majority of them uh, don't. So winning isn't the point. Not initially, anyway. The point is to assert your humanity. The point is to remain uh, human. The point is to maintain ties of solidarity, kindness, and care between yourself and the people around you, so that no matter how bad things can get, uh, you're never going to suffer alone. And I've said it before, but you have to do it, um, dare I say it, out of love. That's all. That's the only reason. And that takes a measure of uh, risk, of personal sacrifice, of uh, a leap of faith that uh, your action will be reciprocated. Even if it isn't, it doesn't have to be. The point is, because of this bond of solidarity, you have that obligation to uh, make that little sacrifice on behalf of the people around you. But the flip side is that everyone else uh, around you is also obligated to make that small personal sacrifice for you as well. And you get enough people uh, doing that at the same time, and it creates a real uh, tangible uh, positive feedback loop. I don't mean that in a mystical sort of way. It's like actually uh, for real. You can feel it and you can uh, see the results uh, in the world around you. Uh, solidarity is is real. Um, there's like fancy names for it. Um, anarchists call it mutual aid, but it's uh, really just reestablishing uh, friendships, really, and familial bonds. And you don't need to share a blood relation to establish a familial bond. This bond of solidarity uh, has truly revolutionary potential um, because it is antithetical to uh, the logic that runs our world today. So if you are able to start practicing it with people around you, and uh, everyone uses uh, intersectional language these days, so that means bonds with people across all lines of of oppression. That has real potential for uh, something worthwhile and uh, meaningful to come out of it. And if you look at the Métis people of Manitoba, Red River, Indigenous people across the plains in Canada, I'm thinking of uh, every Indigenous person I've supported through work, um, every Indigenous coworker I've had, um, my uh, Métis in-laws, what I've been able to learn uh, from the time I've spent with them. Uh, maybe they did win. They're still here. They didn't go away. Their apocalyptic world-ending event uh, actually happened. For the people of Red River, uh, the events of the resistance were the apocalypse, literally. My family's arrival was part of their apocalypse, and they're still here. And I'm part of their family now. Uh, They're part of mine. We're uh, permanently connected. And as we uh, look at apocalyptic potential futures, talking like mostly uh, climate change, or the continued capitalist evisceration of ordinary people's communities, families, and psyches, if you can survive that and remain sane enough and human enough, uh, then that's that's the point. Then you've won. Um, I think there's enough uh, examples in history uh, that bear that out. So uh, if there's anyone listening who's feeling a lot of anxiety or trepidation uh, about the future, um, keep that in mind. Maybe Maybe that will help. I don't know. It helps me anyway. So that's the Red River Resistance, uh, as best as I can describe it. At this time, I know I'm leaving stuff out and I'm getting stuff wrong. I I think I say this every episode. Uh, But uh, hopefully this is helpful for a few people that are listening, especially for people like me whose families arrived in Red River and on the plains uh, in the direct aftermath of these events and whose families profited from the dispossession of people like the Métis. And uh, with the birth of uh, my new daughter, uh, Liz, um, these stories become a little bit more poignant because they uh, hit closer to home. Um, Neither me nor Jill 
has a genetic uh, indigenous heritage, uh, but my uh, daughter has a Cree Métis grandfather and a Cree Métis extended family through Jill's stepfather. So Liz is born into a family that carries uh, the weight of these stories with them uh, still uh, in a way that I'm never uh, going to experience. So uh, if I can do my best to tell these stories about her grandfather's uh, family, I feel like I can uh, help her uh, a little bit to understand the history of her family and where uh, she fits in uh, to the broader story of uh, where she comes from. Um, But for now, we'll leave it there. Uh, Now that we've wrapped this up uh, as a set piece of Clearing the Plains, sort of like a blow-by-blow account of how Clearing the Plains uh, happens and how it was resisted and how ordinary people can organize to, uh, uh, to assert their humanity We'll continue on with chapter six of Clearing the Plains uh, in the next episode, probably. Unless I think of something else that I want to do in the meantime. But again, thanks for listening and we'll catch you later.